Hayden. Very, very grateful for this opportunity. Been a lot of prayer about this. Hopeful that it will be beneficial to us all. Um, so let's just get right into this. We are in Matthew 6, if you want to turn there. We've been in this for about um, seven, eight weeks. Been going through just verse by verse, line by line of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in today, we're going to be focusing in particular on verse 13. Um, and I know we've read it once, but I'd like to read it one more time in its entirety. Just the Lord's Prayer. Um, I'll start in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, I just, um, we thank you so much for who you are, for your, your goodness, your kindness. And Lord, I just pray today as we open your word that, um, Holy Spirit, you know what your people need. Would you convict? Would you encourage? Lord, would you lead us? Lord, I pray would your word do what your word does. And I ask, Lord, if there's any word that comes out of my mouth that is just wrong or untrue, Lord, I pray that your people would just not even hear it. Um, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> I've really just broken this up. Again, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've really just broken this up into two things. Essentially, what is this not, what are we not asking here? And then what are we asking? And I want to try to not spend too much time going over what we're not asking. Um, but before I do that, I want to, I was reminded I was a, as I was preparing for this of a, there's a quote that the Puritans are said to have had, that they said it often, and it went something like this. Um, for every inward glance of your life, take ten long looks at Christ. Now, i got to confess to you, we're going to be doing a lot of inward glancing today, but hopefully at the end, one long look at what Christ has done. But what does this not mean? What are we not asking in this prayer? Because I, I recognize when, when you're coming here and you're reading, lead us not into temptation, it's a little bit jolting. It's a little bit like, whoa, are we, are we asking God, don't tempt us? Because you can, you can read it and you can isolate that verse and kind of come away with that conclusion. Now this is, and I didn't really know this until I started preparing for this, this is what you would call a parallelism. It's part of Hebrew literature or Hebrew grammar, I guess. And it's essentially, you're saying one thing to emphasize the latter part, but deliver us from evil is what's being emphasized here. Um, but I, again, recognize, you come here and you read, lead us not to temptation, you can kind of come away with the thought, we're supposed to ask God to not tempt us. But that is not what we're asking. And I think this is a really good example of this, this simple principle that I've heard in interpreting Scripture, and it's this. Let Scripture 
interpret scripture. So, so what do I mean by that? Let scripture interpret scripture. Well, this is all from one author. Yes? So this does not exist in isolation from the rest of scripture. So, so if I'm wondering about the topic of temptation and God, there are other places that I could go for clarification. So I want to go somewhere to answer this question. Are we asking God not to tempt us? And this is probably one of the most prominent places that many of you already thought. James chapter 1, if you want to turn there. I'm going to read this whole thing, but I want to focus on one verse for now. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So right there, we have our answer. Are we asking God not to tempt us? Absolutely not. It is, it is an insane idea to even consider that God would tempt us, because it goes against his very nature. And it's, it says God cannot be tempted with evil. Why is that? We, we can be tempted with evil. We can be tempted with sin. Why? Because that is our nature. We desire that. God does not desire evil. And it's not just that he doesn't desire it. <laughs> it is that he hates it. He hates sin. He hates evil. It's not even a possibility. It's not even in his nature to be tempted, therefore he could not tempt. And we also have this promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this one will be said probably several times today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is a, this is a beautiful promise that we need to, to keep in our hearts and minds. Listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, that is a promise from the Lord. You can take that to the bank. I recognize we're put in situations all the time where it feels like I have literally no choice but to sin. I recognize that, but it's not true. I want to say this, though, about that verse. This is not a universal promise. What do I mean by that? This is not applicable to everybody in the world. This is applicable to born-again believers. Scripture is crystal clear. Apart from Christ, we are, we're not struggling with sin. We're slaves to sin. We, we just sang it. There's one more thing I want to go over that we're not asking for, and I'm going to try to do this relatively quickly. We're also not asking God in this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. We're also not asking for God to never put us in a situation where our faith in him, his nature, his character is tested, because God does do that. Now, there's some examples I'd really like to go over, and I'm a little bit pressed for time, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But before I do that, I want to just say why I'm saying this, because you can read that and kind of come away with why, why are you saying that. The word here, temptation, is the word 
pyrosmos, I believe is how you pronounce it in the Greek. And its translation could be said, you could almost read the verse as, and lead us not into testing. That's how some people consider it, lead us not into the place of testing. Um, now, there is a difference between testing and temptation. A temptation is when our sinful nature by something within us, something external, provokes us to rebel, provokes us to sin. A test is a situation that we are put in. You, you read in scripture, sometimes it's God allows us to be put in a situation. Sometimes he expressly puts us in a situation where our faith in him, again, our faith in him is tested. Consider some of these examples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these quick, so maybe good to look them up later. But uh, I, I thought about Abraham and Isaac. That's, you can read Genesis 12 through 22, and that's, that's really the story there. But, but Abraham is what, 75 years old when God tells him. He has no children, but he tells him, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham had to wait for 25 years, 25 years before God finally fulfilled that promise. And then once God had fulfilled that promise, we know the story. Sometime later, God said, you take your son, your only son, and you go and sacrifice him. But, you know, I mean, what, what's the test there? What's, what, what's the test? If you remember the story, as they're walking, Isaac asked Abraham, where is the lamb? And you remember what he said? So the Lord will provide one. He had faith that God would provide the sacrifice. What, why? How could he have that? Because he knew that God had said, Isaac is the son of promise. Hebrews tells us that Abraham reckoned that God was so powerful that even if he were to kill Isaac, God could raise him from the dead. Do you see that? It's, it's a simple, it's a test of his faith in the character and nature of God. The Israelites, when they were brought out of Egypt, I mean, daily they were tested Manna in the morning, quail in the evening. God said, you take just enough. I will give you just enough. Don't hoard any. Just take what you need, and I'll provide for you day after day. And that is really fitting, since in this prayer that we've been learning about, it's give us this day our daily bread. You think about what's the test there? It's just simply, will you trust? If God has said it, he will do it. That, that's the simple test. And then I think the biggest one, in the Old Testament, arguably, is Job had everything taken from him, save for his wife, who eventually just told him, just curse God and die. I mean, what's the test there? It's a test of, do you trust in the goodness of God when everything in your life is taken from you, is crumbling? And, and that is the test always. It goes back, I mean, that's what I see in Scripture. It goes back to, do you trust in the nature and the goodness of God? But I want to recognize this. When we're walking through tests, which again, God does give us, when we're walking through trials, is it wrong to ask God to deliver us from those things? It's not wrong. Paul asked to be delivered from the thorn in the flesh, if you'll remember. But we've got to, we've got to remember this. 
that we can ask for deliverance from the test. We can ask for healing, escape from a, from a difficult situation. We can ask for that. Sometimes God's answer is no. And we need to accept that. And, and you know what? We need to accept this. You remember what Christ said right before he started this prayer? He said, our Father knows what we need. You know, if he knows what we need, he also knows what we don't need. Sometimes we need deliverance from the trial. Sometimes we need to walk through the trial. We need to walk through the test. And that's precisely his plan. But, but listen, we have a father. I mean, father, think about that word. That's not distant. That is near. We have a father who has said in his word, in First Peter, come to me, cast all your cares upon me. I recognize you're walking through a trial. There is a myriad of emotions that come with that. And God is not saying to just bottle those up. He's saying, come, lay them at my feet. Testing is a good thing. It results in greater assurance of our salvation. It results in conformity to the nature of God and his goodness. And again, the test is, will you hope in the character and the nature of God? And I just I wanted to read this one verse in Psalm, I don't think I had this written over. But I was just reminded of this as I was thinking. His delight, the Lord's, is not in the strength of the horse, nor in the pleasure, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. What is that? His delight is not in human strength, even the amount of faith that we have, our endurance, our wit, our wisdom. What does he delight in? What does the Lord delight in? The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. That's, that's what the Lord looks for. So what are we not asking for here? We're not asking for God to not tempt us. Again, that's against his nature. We're not asking that God never test our faith in him because he does do that. So what are we asking well, I thought it would be helpful to kind of do a bit of a recap on what we've been learning to go back to Matthew 6 and just go through these. You know, because we, we come through here and we, we're reading these week by week and, and it can be our tendency, I think, probably for, for verse 11 when we pray to just hyper-focus on one thing and that is, Lord, give me what I need. We can kind of come to God and just pray about that. And we're put in situations where that's all the time we have is to just pray for that. But this model that we've been given in Matthew 6 is something that we're supposed to imbibe whenever we pray. Pray then like this. That's how we're supposed to pray. All of these themes that we see here should, should come out in our prayers. So let's go through here. And if you, if you would, pay particular attention to verse 12. I really believe that dovetails into verse 13 of what are we asking for in this, in this verse particularly. But let's, let's start here. All right. We start our prayers. Our Father in heaven, we, we have got to recognize whenever we approach the Lord in prayer that we are brought near in an intimate relationship by the blood of of Jesus Christ, that we can call him Father. You know, what, you know what Jesus said in John 1? He said, or what the author says, rather, he said, any who received Christ, he gave them the right to become children of God. 
we recognize when we come into our prayers that God is our Father. Drew mentioned it in his the first week we were going over this, the word Abba and Ima. Abba would be the, the familial relationship term for, for dad. It'd be like daddy almost in our culture, and, and Ima would be, you know, mama. Um, and that may be a little bit interesting for us to think about calling God daddy, but, you know, I... I, I, do, I do not think in any way that our Lord's structure of this prayer is purposeless. Because right after we get our Father in heaven, Daddy, we're drawn near an intimate relationship, we get, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. God is holy. He's worthy of all of our fear, all of our reverence. He's the righteous judge of the world. And listen, the Christian can come to this prayer and it can be glorious because we can recognize he's the righteous, holy God who upholds the entire world. And yet, he is Father. He is near to me. And that, that recognition can lead to such, I mean, just even in the beginning of our prayer, such worship that we, we skip down to the next verse. Your kingdom come. Your will, be, your will be done. Lord, do whatever is going to advance your kingdom. Do whatever is going to save sinners. Or do whatever in my heart is going to draw me closer to you and conform me to your image. And undoubtedly, there's maybe some eschatological view here of, Lord, <laughs> come return in your glory. And then when we finally get to ourselves here in verse 11, we're just simply asking Lord, give me what I need. Give me my daily bread. From the most minuscule aspect. You think about bread. I mean, that's just, that is mundane, day in, day out, minor thing, but we need it. And, and are we not utterly dependent upon God for every single thing, every breath that we take, every beat of our heart? We are totally dependent upon God. Whether we recognize it or not, we are. Now, John 6 says this. You remember what Christ said? He says, I am the bread of life. So we come here and we're asking God, Lord, give me what I need today. Give me my physical needs. But undoubtedly, there is a spiritual aspect to this. So, so we're coming and we're asking, Lord, from the most minor thing that I need to the most major thing that I need, I am totally dependent upon you and I'm asking you, give me what I need. And it's, it's that recognition of need that I believe leads us into this, the greatest need that we have, which is that our very souls be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debts, that is, a, that is an interesting word, is it not? Not sins. I recognize there's translations that say that, but, but debts, why? We owe a moral debt to God because we have broken his moral law. <laughs> and, and it is a debt that we simply cannot pay. Simply cannot pay. And again, we are recognizing when we come here, our utter dependency on God for his mercy to forgive us of our sins. Now, I said that this kind of dovetailed into the, the next verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we are forgiven by God, 
the very things we've been forgiven of, we now want deliverance from those things. When, we are, when God saves us from the penalty of sin, we are then saved from the power of sin. Consider, consider this. This is a prophecy in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a prophecy of what the new covenant, what we're under now, would look like. Listen to this. This is the Lord speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, when we are saved, you know what scripture says? We're something altogether new. That's 2 Corinthians. We become new creatures, new desires, new thoughts. And when we're saved, again, from the penalty of sin, God does something. He gives us a heart of flesh. What is that? A heart that is sensitive to God's word. A heart that desires to be obedient to God. When we're saved from the penalty, we're then saved from the power. And we are expressing in this prayer lead us not to temptation, a desire for God to shape us, a desire to God to save us from that power of sin. So that was all the themes kind of of, of this prayer. What are we really asking, though, in verse 13? What is, what is the heart of what we're asking? Well, if you would, go back to James 1, because we saw... Where does sin not, or where does temptation not come from? I'll read it again. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's not coming from the Lord. Temptation is not. Where is it coming from? Verse 14, James 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's right there. It's our very hearts that draw us into sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If temptation is not from God, again, but we're lured and enticed by our own desires, and that's what leads us into temptation, what are we asking here? We're asking that God change our very desires. We're asking that God change our desires to be holy, to love what is good, to hate what is evil. That's what we're asking. And as I was thinking about this, I just, I was reminded of, of David's prayer in Psalm 51. If you are familiar with this, he's praying this after his sin with Bathsheba. The grievous life-altering sin. Listen to the language that he uses. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. That is the heart of our prayer in this lead us not in temptation. We are asking God, change our very desires to be in line with your word. Change our very desires to where we, like the psalmist says, we delight in the law of the Lord. It becomes something altogether beautiful to us, something that we long for. We're also asking for protection on a day-to-day level that the Lord would keep us from things that would tempt us, that would entice us to sin in the world. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my own heart and I'm looking around this room and I just, I recognize we're all tempted in different ways. In a myriad of different ways, we're all tempted and there's a world out there with which we were once a part of that is ready and willing and able and desiring to lead us into sin, to tempt us into sin. I, mean, I, I just think about it. and I can be watching a sermon on YouTube and right in the middle of it, there can be some ad with, with borderline pornographic images on it in the middle of watching a sermon. We're asking God for, for protection from those things. But again, we've got to remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will never allow us to be put in any situation where we cannot say no to sin and yes to his will. Now, if, again, we're tempted by our own desires, but if that were not enough, do we not have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? Do we not? Do we not have an enemy whose who's, this world <laughs> lies in the lap of the evil one? That's what scripture says. You know, I, can, I recognize it can seem strange to think about Satan coming against us and tempting us. It is, it is not often that I give a thought about that, but I, I really think we should more often consider that. And you just think about it. Two chapters ago, Matthew 4, Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil. And I recognize, not his divinity, his humanity, but, but let alone, if Christ's humanity can be tempted by Satan, you better believe yours can. I better believe mine can. As I was thinking about this, I found this, this quote. Um, if you guys could, I don't know, put it up there. I don't know if you have it or not. Uh, by by R.C. Sproul of what are we asking in this second half of the prayer? Deliver us from the evil one. What, what are we really asking? Quote, we are not merely to pray that we will not be delivered into evil in general, but that we will be protected from the wiles of Satan. We are to pray that we will not be exposed to the onslaught of his attacks against us, to the ways in which he tries to entice us to sin or destroy our confidence in our Savior by accusing us of our failures and imperfections. Now, I want to talk about one way that Satan tempts us. And I, I recognize there are many, far more than I could probably even, even consider. But I want to talk about one that I really believe is the most crippling way that he can come against a believer. And that is what R.C. Sproul said here at the end. Destroy our confidence in our Savior. 
Satan will attack our confidence in Christ by directing our focus on us. Why? Why, why do that? Why, why is that so crippling? There's one thing that Christians really recognize. If you, if you really come to that place of, of recognizing Christ is my only hope, you recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, I have no peace with God. I am God's enemy. I'm a child of wrath. I'm hopeless. And if Satan can attack that, you'll find a believer who's not at peace. You'll find a believer who's most likely not growing. You'll find a believer who's most likely not being used all that much by the Lord. But listen, Satan does not come against us without some level of truth. I mean, you go back to the garden, and you even go back to, to Matthew chapter 4. He comes with some level of truth. He comes with God's word sometimes. But yet, it's always just, just a little bit off. So that he can get his foot in the door, and you can recognize, well, that sounds kind of right. Then, then in the end, he'll twist the knife. And I was think, as I was thinking about this, I was brought to this, this, this hymn because, you know, Satan comes and he tempts us to despair. You, you'll remember this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. You see, he can tempt us to despair. Why? Because we're guilty. Because we're sinners. Because we recognize, yeah, if God ever really gave me what I truly deserve, I'd be in hell forever. Listen, Satan would have us believe all manner of lies about our salvation, about the character and the nature of God. He would have us believe that, that it's like there's some level of, you know, if I just sin one more time, that's it. I'm gone. My salvation is lost. I'm hopeless. I've, ne I've, I've lost my faith. Satan would have us leave that God can't forgive, that he won't forgive. Or on the inverse, for some people, Satan would have you believe that you actually can measure up to God's laws. You actually can measure up to what he has commanded that you do. You don't really need Christ. Or maybe you need Christ, but, you know, you can add a little bit to it. Very cunning. But listen, Satan does not want us to understand this. Satan does not want us to renew our minds in the truth about who God is because, again, it's like he comes in the midst of our sin and tempts us to say, if you were really a Christian, you would not have done that right there. If you were really a Christian, you would not have thought that thought right then. You would not have said that word. God cannot forgive you. He won't forgive you. You've gone too far this time. I, I want us to consider this. This is a story from the Old Testament about, and it's just, it just, it blows me away when I think about this, about the kind of God that we have. Because Satan does not want us to understand the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is glorious. He wants us to create some monster in our head of a God who's hateful and vengeful and not just, not able to forgive, but is something entirely despicable. Listen, listen to this. This is, this is Joel 2, and I, 
I, I know Joel's not a very popular book, but, but to set this up a little bit, this is a prophecy before Judah is going to be taken into captivity into Babylon. There has been centuries, I mean centuries, of immorality, of idolatry, of injustice, centuries of this. I mean, kings were sacrificing their sons in fires to false gods. If you think about some of the horrible things, most horrible things that we can imagine were going on in Judah. But listen to what God says. Joel 2, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure, endure it? The day is coming when you're going into captivity. The judgment is coming, but yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Even now, even now after centuries of immorality, centuries of idolatry, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That's the God of Scripture, the God that is slow to anger, abounds in steadfast love. But that is not the God that Satan wants us to believe in. But brethren, we have got to renew our minds in that, in who he is Now, um, I recognize um, when we're having discussions like this about being let out of temptation, my, my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would convict all of our hearts about something because we have sin. We do. And, and you look back, just just one chapter in Matthew 5 about how we're supposed to deal with our sin. You know what Christ said? He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to lust, away with it. Gouge it out. We need to examine ourselves. We need to see... What, what am I allowing in my life? What sins must go? We must do this. We must. But I know we can come away from sermons like this just very inward focused, thinking that our joy, our peace, it's, it's really rooted in how well we do. How well am I living my Christian life? And when, I've, when I'm doing really well, I'll be at peace. When I'm doing really good, then I'll have joy. But it is beholding the glory of the Lord that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. So, let's consider this. Because the reality is we're going to walk out of here and we're going to fail. We're going to walk out of here and, and we're going to be praying, Lord, lead us not to temptation. Lord, help change my heart to where the thing that I, I once valued so much I don't desire it anymore, and yet we're still going to stumble on that. To some degree, we are. 
But though we're tempted and fail, we have a Savior who never did. We have a Savior who just two chapters ago went to the wilderness for 40 days and endured things that I don't know that we'll ever really understand the depth of what Christ faced in the wilderness against Satan. I don't know that we'll ever know the end of it. But, and you know what Scripture says? Scripture says that after he, those 40 days, Satan departed until an opportune time. So he came back. We have a Savior that was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. We have a Savior who went the night before he was crucified into that garden and cried out, Lord, let the cup of your wrath pass away from me, but Lord, if not, let your will be done. We have a Savior that went to the cross, and on that cross bore the wrath of Almighty God against what? For what? For all the ways that we're tempted and fail. And we have a Savior that went and died and was buried and rose again. You know what Scripture says? Scripture says that after he made a purification for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why? What, and what is that? What does that mean? The motivation for our obedience, it cannot be rooted in us. The motivation for our joy, our joy, period, cannot be rooted in us. It must be done, rooted in what Christ has done for us in renewing our, mice, renewing our mind in that. Christ sat down. We've got to recognize this because there is total satisfaction in what he has done for us. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are pleased totally and completely, irreversibly in what Jesus Christ has done to redeem guilty sinners. And my only question is this, are you satisfied with that work? Because I recognize we can kind of think we need to add to that. We can even come away from talks like this and say, yes, I see what he did, but if I could just add a little bit to it, a little bit of some of the things we talked about today, a little bit of, of testing of my faith and coming through a little bit of being let out of temptation, if I could add a little bit of, of witnessing and evangelism and, and discipleship and Christian growth and serving here and, and sacrificial giving and, and, and when I've done all of those things and, I, and I've added all of that, I, we think, yes, yes, then I'll be satisfied in what he's done. And, and let's just recognize the reality. There are some of you here today that think, yes, when I do that, then I'll be a Christian. That's not resting. That's not being satisfied in what Christ has done for us. Uh, 
My prayer is that we would not look at what Christ has done, look at the cross and say, yes, but let me just add to it. Oh, that we would rest and recognize that all the shame, all the guilt, all the blame, he's purged it all. He's cleansed us and we are at peace with God because of Christ. Let's renew our minds in that. Let us not look at the cross and say, yes, but let every mouth be shut about that. Lord, um, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the work that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we are, we are tempted and with sin. We fail. Lord, but you have been so gracious and so kind to send Christ to redeem us, to forgive us. And Lord, I thank you that you are a God that is slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Lord, you, you say to anyone, come. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive and purify. And I pray would you do your work today, Lord. Amen.